equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. Today we're talking about a topic that touches on every aspect of our society, climate change. Between 2014 and 2019, there were 537 presidential disaster-related declarations. These included fires, floods, and hurricanes that impacted every corner of the country, costing more than $500 billion in damages and killing at least 3,800 people. Even now, as we're recording, Kentucky is grappling with deadly floods and wildfires are raging from Oregon to Texas. These disasters upend lives, creating havoc and uncertainty for the largest companies to the smallest families, many of whom are already struggling. As the science shows that climate disasters will only increase in regularity and damage as climate change worsens, lawyers are increasingly a part of the frontline response. So enveloping is climate change on the legal profession, former Secretary of State John Kerry told the American Bar Association last year that you are all climate lawyers now, whether you want to be or not. With this in mind, I wanted to learn more about what climate change means for legal aid. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Jeannie Ortiz-Ortiz is the Pro Bono and Strategic Initiatives Manager at Pro Bono Net. Ariadna Goudreau is the Founder and Executive Director of Ayuda Legal Puerto Rico. And Linda Anderson-Stanley is the Senior Manager of Disaster Programming at Equal Justice Works. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Ariadna, I wanted to start with you. And usually in these shows, I jump right into what is legal aid doing about whatever it is we're talking about today. But before that, I wanted to ask you a more broad framing question. And I also want to talk about language at the top of this show, because I think it's particularly interesting on this topic. But to start off this conversation, how is climate change an access to justice issue? I mean, is it an access to justice issue? Definitely it is. When we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the impact that historically vulnerable populations have when we're talking about sea level rise or when we're talking about major hurricanes or floodings or fires. So we're talking not only about disparate impact, but we're also talking about how policies that have to do with recovery, how legal processes that have to do with uh, assistance impact their lives, how some people are being included or excluded from aid. And it's also an access to justice issue because at the bottom, when we're talking with climate change, we're talking about the right to stay, about the right to housing, about the right to education, to employment, to to everything else. So, So of course it is. And so Jeannie, we have the sense that climate change is an access to justice issue, but it's also important to how we talk about it. And if we think about the big inflection point, for disaster relief funds coming to the Legal Services Corporation, for example. It was Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana in what I believe was 2005. And that was very much couched in the language of disaster response. I don't remember the period of time around Katrina being a big climate change discussion, even though that was maybe happening more around the fringes. Now we talk about climate disasters. And I'm curious, what's the language we should be using to talk about this issue now that connects what is going on with the climate? What is going on with these events that we're witnessing and the work that you are doing? Sure. So at Pro Bono Net, uh, we are being more thoughtful about the language we use. Uh, for example, 
we believe that shifting from, from reactive terms such as disaster response, uh, changing that to climate emergencies or climate-driven disasters. And doing that because it allows us to be more and very specific about what's causing these events. And we're also using the word um, resilience uh, where appropriate to highlight the importance of communities adapting quickly and effectively to climate change and thinking about how we can change our practices in the long term to prepare for more and more of these climate events. And this includes um, participating in discussions uh, during Disaster Resilience Awareness Month, which is an effort of uh, Equal Justice Works and other organizations. One of the other things that I noticed when prepping for this particular episode, and this might be the first time that this has happened on one of these episodes, is that all of us uh, here, including myself, we all graduated law school within the last 10 years, which might make us collectively the youngest uh, panel on Talk Justice to date. And with, with that in mind, Linda, I wanted to ask you, uh, we all, I think, I'm going to guess, we all fall into the millennial generational bucket, or maybe we're elder Gen Z folks, depending on on when we were born. But these are the two generations, as poll after poll show, completely bought in on climate change and the need to do drastic things uh, to, to change uh, the arc that we are on from the worst possible outcome. And so I'm curious, continuing kind of on this language point, what is it like for you to have the discussions that you have professionally with people that are our age versus people that are older in the legal community? Do you have to change your language? Do you have to change tact in those conversations? I'm curious what that looks like for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a really good point. Um, people in our generation and folks that I talk to are, are doing exactly what Jeannie just mentioned. We're being more mindful of what we're calling things and we're using the term climate-driven disaster or weather-related disaster. And we're moving away from the term natural disaster because there's nothing natural about them. Um, but, you know, talking to other folks in um, different generations or um, in funder, funder landscapes, particularly, there's a lot of education around those conversations um, and moving people away from considering these natural disasters that just kind of appear out of nowhere and really harnessing in on that piece of preparedness because a lot of those folks are not interested in talking about preparedness or funding it. There's really a huge education component, like, like I said, in, in shifting the way we talk about that. And still climate change has a, a political connotation to it. So you have to be careful about who and when you use the word climate change to the work that we're doing as well. That is, is a perfect segue to the kind of the last question I had around how we talk about these particular issues. And it was a political one. And Jeannie, I want to come back to you for a second. Uh, is The climate science is pretty ironclad as far as science can be ironclad, uh, but it's an undeniably political uh, topic in, this, in our country specifically, as Linda pointed out. Uh, and so I'm curious, how do you think about weaving through these various groups in a way that moves your organization towards the ends that you want to without alienated any, but alienating anyone uh, on any particular political side of the issue? I think the first step is to acknowledge that, you know, these are conversations that we should be having and being very mindful about where everyone is coming from. And acknowledging as well the the work that everyone is doing in in this space, uh, we've you know we've had 
a lot of time to, to think about this based on our experience over the, the past uh, few years. Uh, and the, the work um, that, that we do has led us to um, think more about, you know, what are the spaces that we need to be creating to have these types of conversations? And um, who else do we need to incorporate into these discussions so that we can have a better understanding of, you know, the, the language that we should be using or the, the type of other work that we should be considering so that we, you know, we can be on the same page, but also acknowledge where everyone is coming from and acknowledge the work that everyone is doing. And and so, I mean, just to call out the elephant in the room, then it's the right that politically doesn't usually want to have the climate change discussion. And I'm curious what you find useful in those conversations to bring people from the right side of the aisle towards this issue uh, and not alienate them uh, on account of uh, their beliefs. I think it's uh, fostering collaborations and being very specific about the reason why we're, you know, thinking about changing the, the language or having different discussions. Uh, but, it, but I think it, it just really helps to, to build on the collaborations that we have um, and use, uh, you know, the work that we're doing together to have, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations about this or create other spaces where um, it, it's helpful to, uh, to talk about this. And probably also important to remember that, you know, Kentucky is underwater and Texas is on fire and this is affecting everybody regardless of, of political persuasion. Uh, Ariadna, I wanted to now kind of move into where these conversations tend to start on this podcast. And you hit on it a little bit at the top of the show, but how is climate change affecting legal aid practice for you in, in Puerto Rico? You mentioned housing up top. Obviously, if a flood or, or a fire comes through a community, people are going to need a place to stay. They're going to need to prove title. But I'm curious, what else are you seeing change for you uh, as, as the climate is changing itself? I think the climate change like requires another kind of lawyering. It's a lawyering that, it, that it's more, more um, open to changes, to sudden changes. It's a legal practice that has to do with uh, a lot of shortages, shortages of power, shortages of uh, paper, of internet access, of communications, and that is more eager to go outside and meet people where they are, exactly where they are. And for disaster survivors that may uh, include like, um, like uh, serving people amidst an informal camp after an earthquake, that may translate into uh, crossing a flooded river to be able to get to our community and to start offering assistance that I think goes beyond legal aid and starts thinking about how can we, with our legal tools, better the conditions for these survivors, not only amidst this disaster, but looking towards the future. So it's a legal practice or a community lawyering practice that is committed and tied to advocacy too. Linda and Jeannie, I'd like you to jump in as well to talk about maybe how you're seeing things change in my preparation for this show, other things that came up beyond housing and disaster assistance, uh, wills and transfer of title are obviously being affected by disasters and if somebody happens to die, unfortunately, due to one of these events, uh, child custody during an evacuation order, uh, obviously immigrant labor is going to take the brunt of a heat dome if they're outside working and don't have the labor protections that they're entitled to, um, as well as uh, talking with some people, uh, domestic violence as well and the chaos and stress of a, a large event and your life being turned upside down, then the need for protective orders can also increase. But I'm curious what you're seeing in, in the work that you're doing. I mean, I think that an important role that lawyers can play and that some of our Equal Justice Works disaster 
resilience program fellows are doing is, you know, assisting with policy reform and legislation. And like Ariadna just mentioned, that advocacy piece. I mean, we're seeing new climate driven disasters and extreme weather events in areas that aren't prepared for them, like winter storms in Texas and extreme heat sweeping across the nation and places that aren't used to that. So our power structures aren't prepared. Infrastructure is not ready to respond to those types of events. Um, in California, they do things like the utility public safety power shutoffs, but they're not thinking about the folks with disabilities who rely on electricity for oxygen, for example. So attorneys are working to ensure that the disaster recovery methods that are in place are equitably accessible for everybody. Um, and lawyers can help make that make the government make the connection between the importance of that proper infrastructure and protecting its citizens and building climate resilience. And so to add to that, uh, climate change is also exacerbating uh, nationwide. Uh, a lot of the social injustices that legal aid programs fight against on a daily basis. So, you know, housing stability, homelessness, displacement, domestic violence, job loss. And if those inequalities remain true and we see more and more of these climate disasters, it's likely that we will see an even greater need uh, for, for legal aid. And you know, when, when we think about how climate change is, is affecting uh, clients and communities and, and legal aid, uh, we also think about, you know, the fact that clients are part of the communities that are experiencing the increase in these climate events, which means more and more people are at risk of the impact these disasters have. In the U.S., um, the intensity and frequency of, you know, these disasters has increased dramatically in the past 15 years. Uh, as Jason, you you mentioned at the beginning, causing billions of dollars in costs to repair the damage across communities. And, you know, we, we're seeing a, a big change and there are more disasters happening year round. And just this year that there have been 29 federal major disaster declarations. That doesn't include the, the separate climate emergency declarations at the state level. So it's uh, an even bigger number. And so when we think about, you know, who is at most risk and what are some of the issues that we're seeing uh, with the increase in severe weather, we're talking about the same communities that are served by many legal aid programs, which include, you know, communities and areas where primarily Black, Hispanic, Latino, Indigenous people live, uh, people with low incomes. Uh, these are communities that are most, uh, more often than not, exposed to the danger uh, of disasters um, uh, as Studies have shown that people with low incomes are most likely to live in low elevation areas uh, and therefore highly exposed to severe and life-threatening floods. So that my point is that it, there's an exacerbation, right? The, the climate change is exacerbating all of these um, social injustices that legal aid programs uh, fight against on a daily basis. One of the other things that dawned on me when, when prepping the, for the show, and Linda, it was when I was talking to you a few weeks back, uh, was that Thinking about, again, we all graduated law school within the last 10 years, me 10 years this year. And when I was going through law school, which had a very strong environmental law program, the whole discussion was about impact litigation or going and working for the Environmental Protection Agency. The discussion around environmental law had nothing to do with kind of the on the ground work that you all are, are doing in your day to day. So, Linda, I'm curious if that was also true for you or if you went through a program where those lines were were you know, the dots were connected for you maybe in your legal education. And if they weren't in your legal education, at what point did it dawn on you that you were going to become a climate response I am also on my 10-year law school anniversary this year. So very similar to you, um, environmental law was just 
just about that um, and, and doing environmental protection agency type work. So I went to law school in Chicago and really none of this had dawned on me for me until many years after law school. Um, Chicago, we of course do have things like tornadoes um, and, and flooding events, but nothing on the level that I experienced once I moved to Florida, which is where I live now. So in 2017, I experienced Hurricane Irma as a, um, a resident of Florida. It was my first time ever having to deal with a hurricane and having to evacuate. At the same time, I had just joined the ABA Young Lawyers Division Disaster Legal Services Program. So it was simultaneously um, evacuating my home for Hurricane Irma and also thinking about what are the legal issues that are going to impact everyone and how can we set up a response initiative to that. So it just kind of happened to me as a, a chance of circumstance as a legal aid attorney um, and something I became involved in because of I, I actually experienced it. But prior to that, I never even heard of the term disaster law or climate resilience attorney, anything like that. Is that changing? I mean, you work with a lot of recent law graduates. Are they coming out with the education that we didn't get 10 years ago? Or is this still an awe? ongoing evolution in legal education? A little bit of both. Um, I will say I actually am an adjunct professor at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport, Florida, where we do teach a disaster law primer and talk a lot about how these climate disasters um, can be built into the legal framework and what attorneys can do to recover, respond, and prepare to those types of disasters outside of just going to work for the EPA. Um, and there are other law schools across the country that do provide this type of framework for their, their law students and are introducing these types of programs. Equal Justice Works does a conference and career fair every year for law schools across the country and law students. And they also do a training for disaster lawyering for law students and provide them with a certificate to kind of learn about the field of disaster law and how they can get involved uh, post-graduation. So there's definitely still more room for growth and definitely encourage other law schools to adapt this type of program. There is an appetite for it. Law students are thinking about it and they do want to learn about it. And so that the, the language around adaption, preparation, uh, resilience, we've heard those words a couple of times now uh, throughout uh, the show. And, and I'm curious to what you know, uh, much of what legal aid does is reactive, right? A problem has occurred uh, to somebody in need and a legal aid attorney is going to stand in to provide services to react to whatever that thing, whether it's an eviction, the need for a protection order, uh, the rejection of, of a government benefit. I'm curious what legal aid can be doing that's proactive when it comes to climate. And Jeannie, you kind of talked about this a little bit and we were talking about definitions at the top, bringing up uh, resilience. So I'm curious, what are the things that legal aid can be doing that happens before the disaster strikes? Sure. There are a number of things. Uh, one of them is creating a strong collection of legal rights resources that are routinely updated and available in multiple languages uh, and resources that are ready for wide distribution if a disaster strikes. Uh, there are amazing resources out there that several legal aid organizations have already developed. Um, at Pro Bono Net, we share some of those via a listserv uh, as models for organizations that um, are expecting a, a disaster. 
The other thing is building uh, year-round coalitions uh, or meeting with groups that focus on disaster legal preparedness and resilience. Good examples of this include the Disaster Legal Assistance Collaborative in California, the Disaster Umbrella Group uh, in Florida. This is, I think, a great way to discuss, you know, any lessons learned from past disasters or things that are, um, you know, evolving across the country and where there are areas of, of improvement. Um, and then uh, also, I think another thing is, you know, educating communities about the potential dangers of, of climate change and how legal aid can work with community leaders to understand the federal and state programs that are available in the event of a disaster and the legal rights of individuals in this, con in this context. And um, finally, helping educate you know, funders uh, and, and other organizations in the philanthropic world about the importance of legal aid in the era of climate change. We know that most of the, the mobilization and funding uh, comes after a major disaster, and in some cases when it's often too late to, to save lives. And I think a lot about you know, what we can learn from spending billions of dollars to repair the damage uh, caused by a disaster. Uh, so you know, as a society, can, can we be you know, saving more money in disaster response by investing in disaster preparedness and resilience efforts? Um, can we incentivize communities to better prepare for disasters? And if so, how do we do that? And how legal aid can be a part of that? And do also, do we need more funding for the systemic issues that legal aid tackles on a day-to-day -day basis, given that climate change continues to impact our communities. So having that conversation with funders or you know, in these spaces where we talk about climate change, I think is also important. Ariana, one of the things that Jeannie just mentioned was fundraising for proactive approaches to climate change. And you hinted that that is hard. Uh, I'm curious what specifically makes it hard and what's been your experience trying to fundraise for that work? Fundraising is hard, and I think that it has to do with a lot of elements, but disasters are like a flavor of the month thing. So uh, they become a fad right after a disaster strikes uh, someplace. You know? So Puerto Rico becomes fashionable or supporting California becomes fashionable. But then in the aftermath, the months that follow, the years that follow, like it becomes harder and, and harder. But Ayuda Legal Puerto Rico, we are on a non-LSE. We never receive any kind of funding from the government, either federal or local. So the, the challenge is greater, I think. Um, but there has been a shift. I, I would say that there has been a shift in philanthropy uh, that is more committed to social justice issues and that can see disasters beyond legal aid and to see them as a, as a social justice uh, phenomenon. So that's what I say that it's not only legal aid. We have to look towards advocacy because uh, we have a bigger chance of raising resources, needed resources to accompany people that way. In the last few minutes that we have, I wanted to put my focus a little bit on the future. And one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around as I've been working through preparing for this episode is what is legal aid's role in managed retreat? This is the idea that climate change affects an area so significantly that it's no longer fit for human uh, consumption and people need to be moved. This has already happened in, in places like Kivalina, Alaska, where due to sea rise, uh, a whole community had to be moved inland. Uh, I believe Puerto Rico is going through uh, work like this as well because of the hurricanes that have happened there in the last number of years. And so, Ariana, I want to stay with you for a second because, I mean, you live in a place that's going through this conversation now. And I'm curious, like, what is Legal Aid's role in this? Is it, is it too early to be talking about managed retreat? Is this the conversation that we need to be having now? I'm curious where you see it. 
it's not early. Uh, it's never early. Of course, sea level rise is not going to happen overnight, but we know that it's happening already. So what I think it's important from a legal aid perspective is the fact of what I mentioned at the beginning. This is a human rights issue. This is about, you know, prioritizing housing, but also how disparate impact in specific communities look like. What is the racial equity analysis when we're talking about managed retreat from, for some communities and not for others? So I think that legal aid um, has a challenge, but also uh, an opportunity to side with people and to um, understand and to educate about the fact that relocation is not only science-based issue, but it's also a human rights issue. So uh, at this moment, what we're doing is trying to um, learn as much as we can and to promote as much participation from the communities that are going to be affected um, as it's possible. My follow-up is something that I can't quite wrap my head around yet on, on this particular issue. and. So if then we take what you're saying and that legal aid attorneys need to help their clients in this regard, but a lot of legal aid work, especially post-disaster, is to help them get FEMA benefits or, or some type of disaster relief if they need to rebuild their home or, or take care of their families in some particular way. Is specifically when it comes to rebuilding one's home, like, is there an imperative to the legal aid attorney to try to get their client not to rebuild in the flood zone? in the path of the fire. Right? Is, is that a role that legal aid needs to start taking on as far as both being reactive to the last disaster, but also proactive about thinking about the future disaster? I don't know if anyone has a specific thought on that question immediately, but if not, uh, Ariana, I would stay with you to, to ask that question. So um, I would say, yes, we have a duty to speak about uh, mitigation, um, looking towards what happened and thinking towards resiliency, what could happen. So yeah, of course we do. But I think that's also important uh, to be able to understand that even when years pass, uh, there's people that's going to be left behind. And that years after the hurricane, in the case of Puerto Rico, five years after Hurricane Maria, are still in the same position with the same blue tarp that they had on 2017. So while we're speaking about the future and resiliency and mitigation and whatnot, what are we going to do with those people that are still expecting a dignified housing or are like displaced uh, from the place they used to call home? Actually, can I add something to that? So, I mean, what we're talking about is uh, what, you know, what experts call the, the slow onset aspect of climate change, right, which is increasing temperatures, um, sea level rise. And, and as Jason, you mentioned, there, these are events that we're starting to see um, in several areas that, that lead to the displacement of communities. I think there is an opportunity for us to, to continue to acknowledge that this is going to continue to happen over a much you know, longer period of time, as scientists have warned us. Um, so when we think about long term, I I would want to see you know more more dialogue around this and you know more conversations with um, the the agencies you know federal state level that uh, require uh, people to meet certain requirements if they've been impacted by a disaster a second time around and what are the opportunities to connect with each other right to better understand the impact that legal aid can have um, on that and in reducing the impact of these events and also how it affects clients. For the last question, what I wanted to do is, and this is maybe selfish and for my own benefit, but I suspect other people might feel the same. Over the last year or so, I've started to read more about climate change and the 
tragedy of the commons response that we're largely witnessing, especially within the United States, which can make me feel pretty pessimistic. And so I wanted to end on asking you three, some people that wake up every day in the climate response world, like what is it that helps you get up in the morning when there's all this bad news around climate change? I'm curious to know what keeps you going. What are the bright spots uh, for you that, you know, energizes you in this space and just doesn't make you want to, you know, fall down and let the ocean take you away? Uh, Linda, I'll, I'll start with you. I will say yes, and it is a big, large problem, and it's terrifying to think about our future our, and the future of the next generations, and there is a lot of work to be done, but just focusing for me on the day-to-day is, is what is helpful rather than letting the large picture engulf me and you know, just being able to provide a resource or deploy a, a fellow attorney and just saving one individual's house or providing um, a really important document to one individual is really, you know, changing the world for them. So that is what keeps me going day to day. Jeannie, what about you? For me, it's, um, it's not going back to the events of 2017. I was in Puerto Rico as well. That's where I'm from. Uh, and when Hurricane Maria impacted the island, and we saw how, how Hurricane Maria, how Hurricanes Irma and Maria impacted communities across the whole island. And some people were without power for, for almost a year. And as I reflect back and I think about what we, um, you know, as a community experienced after that major disaster, I now focus on the future and I think about, you know, that's not a place where we would want to be, you know, we don't want to go back to that, that we, we need to avoid that for future disasters. Um, so that would, what, that's kind of what keeps me moving and knowing that the work that we're doing um, with our partners and uh, or other organizations that we're, you know, doing our best to help people in the event um, of, of a disaster. And as climate change continues to evolve, we just, we can't go back to losing thousands of people. We should avoid that at all costs. It's interesting now knowing, Jeannie, I didn't know that about your history, that all three of you have experienced one of these disasters uh, firsthand that informs your work. Ariadna, I'll leave the last word to you. What keeps you going in this space? I echo everything uh, you just said. And I think it also has to do, in my case, with the fact that this is a place I call home. Puerto Rico, our, our island, this place that it's very difficult, this place that is very complicated, that has been besieged by hurricanes, earthquakes, pandemics austerity, unsustainable public debt, but it's also this place that we call casa or, or, or home. Um, I would also say that on a polit political level, I'm a mom, I'm a mother, you know, um, and it has to do with this idea of my kids and your kids and the kids of the people in the communities that I meet having the chance to decide if they are going to be able to stay here in Puerto Rico or elsewhere, that place uh, called home. And I think that lawyers, we have uh, a duty, an ethical duty to be able to help people fight for their right to stay. And in the end, climate change is about the dignified conditions to stay in a specific geography or, or place. So um, I have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope in my team, in my island, in the people who are building and rebuilding over and over again. And I know that we know how to win. And we are just trying to make way for that. I think that's a, a lovely sentiment, the idea that 
uh, regardless of where you live or who you are or what you believe, everyone at the end of the day is fighting for their home. That's something everyone can get behind when it comes to this issue at a minimum. With that, I would like to thank Ariadna, Linda, and Jeannie for being with us today on Talk Justice. Also, a special thank you to everyone who spoke with me in preparation for this episode. For links to what we discussed today, check out our show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.